Okay, so I'm going to talk about the intellectual property program at UVA. And I think that uh, if you're trying to decide uh, uh, about why you should come to UVA and you're interested in intellectual property, um, the thing you should look at first and foremost when you're selecting a law school, I think, is the professors. Um, maybe that's very selfish for me to say that, um, but I think it's true. That's the major cost of law school is, is having good professors. So you really want to know who is in the intellectual property program because at any school, the people who teach you are the intellectual property program. So I put together some slides on our faculty and I'm going to talk about a little bit about each one. I want to first say a theme about UVA, which is that um, I think the theme of UVA is that we have great intellectual property scholars here, but we do not consider ourselves just intellectual property scholars. The whole philosophy of this school is that the thing you need the most is a great grounding in law. And that includes intellectual property if you're interested in that issue. Um, but the most important thing we can give you is n a broad view of the law. In other words, not to narrow you too much. And I think that is a difference. And between our school and other top schools, a lot of schools have an intellectual property program. And if you look at them, I, I, and I actually came from such a school. I actually moved here just uh, three years ago. And it, it had its own program that I think was to some degree a little bit separate from the rest of the school. And, and it was very successful. It's a, it's a school, George Washington, which has a sort of highly ranked intellectual property program. When I moved down here, I thought, well, this is what they want. They want somebody to come and really make a program, you know, make, you know, make lots and lots of little tiny micro courses about patent claiming or about fair use and copyright and, and just have this large set of course offerings, maybe taught by adjuncts and other people. And the dean told me, no, that's not what we want you to do. That's not our philosophy here. Our philosophy here is that the most important thing we give our students is a general education. And then I began to look through the faculty, and I'm gonna, look, I'm gonna show you the faculty, and everybody that I'm gonna discuss actually has other interests and other things that they bring to the table in addition to intellectual property law. And indeed, I began to realize that was true of my own career, too. Um, I went to law school, and the number of intellectual property courses I took sadly to say, was zero. I took no intellectual property. Now you might think like, well, who is he then? Well, I now have you know, a, one of the leading, I think it's actually the leading case book on patent law. Um, I teach and write extensively in this. I get invited to conferences. There are various things that have said, oh, he's one of the more influential guys in the field. But nonetheless, the reason I think I'm good at intellectual property, and is that I bring other things to it. I bring a broader perspective. And I think that's true of everybody in our intellectual, our, our, our tenured faculty in the intellectual property program. So I'm going to just go through alphabetically, although I'm going to put myself at, at the end, because if I don't get to myself, that's OK. Um, uh, so first up in the Bs, uh, Margot Bagley, uh, who is a professor here who teaches intellectual, uh, international intellectual property. Um, she is. 
uh, as I said, everybody does something in addition to intellectual property. And I was beginning to think, like, what, what Margot, my colleague Margot, and I, she probably is the one that's most focused on her teaching and writing in intellectual property. But she's interested in international intellectual property. I actually thought, like, maybe she could join me today because she's actually a really good speaker. We're actually co-teaching a, a, a class this, this semester. And then I thought, oh, no, I can't. She's in Geneva because the World Intellectual Property Organization is doing some project. And she got called to Geneva because she's one of the main people involved in that. So she is very focused on international intellectual property. Um, I picked out just sort of one of her articles about geographic. I mean, this might sound sort of narrow, but if you don't like narrow, then you're, you're in the wrong field, right? I mean, you're, I mean you're, in, you're going into law, and we write about specific issues. This is an article she did um, about 10 years ago about geographic limitations and what's called prior art. In other words, it used to be the law. At the time she wrote this, it used to be the law that when patent uh, examiners looked to see what was, had been done before, they looked for some categories of art just in the United States. It's like, what? That's crazy. And she said, that's crazy. And it actually it may, you know, may actually be sort of raise a constitutional problem in the modern world where there's great communications. Well, that's no longer the law. Um, now, I don't think, I don't want to say, I don't want to overclaim here. I don't want to say that her article itself was the only thing that changed the law. But, but she wrote this scholarship when other people weren't thinking about this too much. And a statute passed in 2000, a major revision of the patent laws in 2011 took away all the things she's complaining about here. So that's, I think, a, you know, sort of one of her high impact articles. And I'm only going to have sort of one or two articles for each person. Um, Ed Kitch is a professor here who uh, also does, who's very interested in the law and economics of information generally. One of his most famous articles, and I have to say, this is one of the most famous articles in all of, all of patent law, is called The Nature and Function of the Patent System. If you go to other law schools and you sort of say to patent scholars, oh, have you ever heard of Ed Kitch's The Nature and Function of the Patent System? They'd say, oh, yeah, that's like you know, one of the most cited articles ever and the most respected theoretical pieces. What this article did was really combine patent law with theories about information and property rights. Again, I think the great thing about this article is it's not just about the patent system. It was looking outside the patent system to property rights theory and to the economics of information generally. And he wrote this piece, and it's, it's I think, sort of a path-breaking piece. I've actually, uh, one of my early pieces when I was untenured was, was sort of, a, a sort of a, an update or a commentary on this piece. Uh, so I, I think it's a, a really great piece. He's one of our most senior professors. Um, Tom Knockbar is a professor who uh, writes, uh, has written very interesting things about intellectual property and especially copyright. He's been cited by the Supreme Court as authoritative. Um, I think I've only gotten a cite and a dissent, I think. So you know that's not quite as good. Um, but he also is an expert on communications law. And I think, again, if you're, if you're an intellectual property scholar, you can't just look at that one field, especially in the business area. In the business area, if you go out to work at you know, Facebook or uh, uh, Google or something else, they want to know about intellectual property, but they also want to know that you understand 
other areas of law, including things like commercial law or communications policy. So he teaches law that sort of the FCC, which is a big regulatory agency in Washington, for those of you who don't know, who, which decides little issues like whether we should have net neutrality or not. That's sort of its wheelhouse. Obviously, that, has, that is deeply connected in the real world to intellectual property as to what the rules are for communicating the content that's protected by intellectual property. Um, one of his most uh, uh, famous, well, I don't know what you say, famous, but so this is a nice piece, Intellectual Property and Constitutional Norms. I think he's, a, he's done quite a bit of work on the constitutional uh, basis of intellectual property. That's what the Supreme Court cited him for, and I think his work is, is very interesting in that area. Um, Dotan Oliar is a, a scholar who is uh, very interested in law and economics, and he's actually doing a, a, a PhD too. He's actually working on a PhD on empirical analysis um, in, uh, in economics. And he's written um, a lot on, he, he, he focuses mainly on copyright, but he's, you know, again, not just an intellectual property scholar, he's also somebody who understands empirical work, which is very important these days in the world of big data that you're growing into, and also economics, um, very important part of, um, of, the, uh, of, the, of uh, understanding how the legal system works. That's finally my profile, um, which you don't need to see. Um, I put up a couple articles that I've written. The Inducement Standard of Patentability, it was a co-author piece I put two for myself because I thought like, well, you might just think I can only write if I have help or something like that. Um, that's sort of a, it, it's, it's sort of a big issue article in, uh, about when we should give patents. Um, and it's been cited a fair bit, actually. Some, some, some courts have cited this already. Uh, this is an interesting, this is an article I really like because it's about, uh, there's a major controversy in the patent realm right now about uh, business methods, about granting patents to business methods. It's a fairly new development. And one of the interesting things I think I did in this article was that I looked outside of the law and I looked at engineering. And I said, what do engineers think? Of, of their, of, what, do, what do people in business think of what they're doing? And I found that about in the 1950s, you began to see economists saying very funny things, which is they were beginning to say, you know what we're doing is a lot like engineering. And that was decades before the controversy arose in law that, about business method patents. And even, a, even about 15 years before the courts accepted business, or the lower courts first started saying that business methods could be patentable. There was an entire issue devoted in a finance journal to financial engineering. So the thesis of this was, was I think, very straightforward. That you know there there have been a lot of attacks on business method patents as something that was just generated by lawyers and it was just generated by a single court in Washington that has sort of gotten out of control. And the thesis of this article was, no, if you look outside the law, if you take your blinkers off and just look more broadly, you'd realize that the movement of, eco of economics and business people towards thinking about themselves as engineers is much older than the development of the law. And that that, the, the, the underlying, what I say, science or technology of business was driving the development in law rather than the other way around. So anyway, that's some of the things that we uh, we do here. Um, those are some of the, those are our chief tenured professors who I think are uh, involved in intellectual property. 
And I, I, that's, our, that's our philosophy too, a philosophy of not just staying within our field, but looking more broadly. And, and that, I think, is what you want in your education. Because ultimately, you might study intellectual property. You might go off and be in a business. And you might become general counsel of that business eventually. That business, if you become general counsel of it, they're not going to just need you for intellectual property. They're going to need you for commercial law. They're going to need you to understand something about communications law. They're going to need you to understand something about international law if it's a relatively largest size firm or even a medium sized firm these days. You're going to need to understand something about international law. So that, I think, is the philosophy of, of UVA. It's very much a philosophy that I think you probably hear this more than you want to, sort of traces back to Jefferson. Jefferson was the first patent commissioner, the first head of the patent granting office in the United States. But was he just a patent guy? You know, is that all he's known for? No, he did some other things, right? Like even his tombstone, he left off that he found that he was president. He put on that he was the, the writer of the Declaration of Independence and the Virginia Bill of Rights, and he founded this little school called the University of Virginia. And he left a whole bunch of other stuff off. Those were the things that were on his tombstone, but he left off that he was patent commissioner and, and that he was president. Um, but our philosophy here is, a, I think, a philosophy that is different. Um, I believe in it very much. I teach other areas. In fact, as I said, I have to leave, class, leave just a couple minutes early because I have to get to my class. I teach administrative law, which is, may sound really dull and boring, but is in fact sort of uh, the law of separation of powers applied to federal agencies. And some of the things I've done, I haven't put them up, but some of the things I've done in this field have involved um, my expertise in that, in that other area, um, namely separation of powers. So I'm going to, oh, well, one last thing about our philosophy here. Um, the other thing about our philosophy here, and I think this is important, it, this, is, this is a manifestation of the school in general, is that we do believe in a diversity of viewpoints here very strongly. And I think that's something to, to think about. You might not think intellectual property is all that political, but it turns out it's a little political these days in the sense that there are sort of the anti-IP or sort of IP skeptics people and sort of more pro-IP people. And I think we've got both here. We've got both, both, both stripes of people. I'm not going to name my colleagues as to who's, who's what. But throughout UVA, you will see an attention to trying to have a diversity of viewpoints. Um, and that, I think, at other schools, um, it's, it's probably not as big a priority. I don't want to you know, disparage any, any other schools, because after all, we're Virginia. We, don't, we actually we don't do that. And, the, and, and I have co-authors at other schools. Um, but our philosophy here is a little bit different. And it's your choice as to whether you agree with that philosophy, or you know, maybe you want something that is more sort of, I would say, narrow. You might say more focused. Um, I don't want to load the dice. But this is our philosophy, and it manifests itself in what the professors do and how we structure our program. And with that, I'll, I'll leave it open for questions. I've gone about 15 minutes. Yes? I just had a question. Like, uh, for the class you teach about, how big are they? So um, uh, let's see. Patent law uh, ranges from 
Uh, it was about 20 this year, but it often is 40. I think I taught it this year, and and uh, I think I misscheduled it. I scheduled it with there's a conflict. I actually think I'm not. A, it, you, the other alternative is I'm a bad teacher, but I, it, it, that didn't come out in any of my teaching evaluations. I think it, I think I did. A, a, there was a conflict with another major class, actually more than one, because I, I actually selected a very popular slot. So it was a little smaller this year. It um, it goes up to about 40. Copyright and trademark tend to be much larger um, in the sort of 60 to 70 range. Um, and then there's a general survey class of intellectual property, um, which can reach you know into the 80s or so. Um, we don't want it too much larger than that. If you start seeing classes that are too large, we try to, we try to break them down. I, I've always thought that the sweet spot for a class is somewhere between 20 to maybe 60. Um, and, and so that's where we like to teach. And I think that's true of other schools, too, in the sense that, um, for example, I taught at GW. GW has a lot of people interested in patent law. Um, but what they would do is my class would still be about 40 to 60. And they just had multiple sections. They taught it like three times a year or something like that. It's also a much larger law school. It has 500 students. And, so, and therefore, they try to, I think all law schools try to keep you in that, in that sort of sweet spot range so that there's enough people to have a nice discussion, um, but not too many that the professor uh, is overwhelmed and, this, and, and, and can't answer, uh, can't focus on individual students. Yes? I assume there's an intellectual property journal. So yes, yeah, so there's a, a the Virginia Journal of Intellectual of of the G Virginia Journal of Law and Technology, um, and that is a, a journal here. And one of the things we did actually, I can talk more specifically about. I, I mentioned Margot Bagley, one of the first professor, the first professor I put up there, and and I co-teach sometimes. We're we're actually co-teaching a a seminar right now that was built around a hearing in a patent case that was held right here at, at the school, just downstairs in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a courtroom. We had a district judge. He proposed this to us, and we built a whole uh, course around it. It was a, a small course, a sort of extra course. Um, it, was, it was a small seminar, so there were 12 people in that class, which is, if you're talking seminars, that's, a, that's a more of a better number for a seminar. And they, uh, the last class was the judge came in and spoke to us, answered questions from the students um, in about an hour, 45-minute session. He was very generous with this time. He lives here in, uh, in, in uh, Charlottesville. He, he's an Eastern District of Virginia judge. And, and one of the events, they, and they co-sponsored that event. It was a very nice event. Other, um, not just my class, but the journal members came and, and were able to ask the judge uh, questions. We had a nice uh, dinner. Um, to prepared for that for that event, so that's the sort of thing that just recently that happened um, Tuesday. Um, that's the sort of thing that uh, the journal uh, would would do with the with the tenured professors. Uh, yes, down here in front. Do you recommend that first years take any classes related to IP or take seminars? Um, so our schedule, the first semester is set for you. You have no electives in the first semester. In the second semester, you do have electives at Virginia. More electives than most law schools. I, I think that um, for people who are going to specialize in intellectual property, um, the, the second semester does give you the opportunity to take some classes. It would probably be an introductory class, like maybe trademark or copyright, 
um, or maybe the survey class. Most people who specialize in intellectual property don't take the survey class. They usually take the sort of more specific areas that can go into depth. Um, so, I, uh, you know, that, that does occur. I don't think it's necessary for, for a student to, to take one of those classes first year. When I was in law school and at many other law schools, students have very few electives. Uh, first year. I think I had one. I think many other law schools have one or two. And I think first year, you know, it, it, it might be best to, uh, to take a more general class like evidence or professional responsibility, something that you need for your general education, and then wait till second year. But I think that's very much the choice of the student, um, it seems to me. Uh, and, and it might depend upon where they're coming from. Some students come from backgrounds where they've already done some IP work, and maybe they would feel very comfortable in that class, and then it would be a good class for them to take um, second semester, first year. Yes? Uh, so you talk a lot about kind of the intersection of IP with business, but do you also yes. do it with healthcare in terms of like the privacy laws, HIPAA, um, and then the new like regulatory agencies? So I think there are people here who are interested in uh, in in uh, healthcare, um, and and I I think that that's something that we have not done yet um, in terms of the professors writing together, but it's a project that, for example, is on my radar of of things that I would like to uh, work together with somebody else on. Um, right now, I, I am working with a, a co-author on. Um, uh, who, who, does, who, who does no intellectual property teaching, but teaches pure commercial law. And we're working on a project about the, the, um, the commercial law of intellectual property. Um, but I could see myself doing something in, um, in healthcare. Margot Bagley actually does, uh, is, is one of the best people who looks at the morality of intellectual property. I didn't mention that, but, but she's got a number of articles on, on the morality issues associated with granting intellectual property. So that's right on the edge of some of the, I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's right on the edge. It's, some of those issues are some of the hotly debated issues in, um, in healthcare about what kinds of technologies do we want to include in the patent system, because if you include it in the patent system, that creates incentives for people to research in that area. And there may be some technologies where there are some significant moral issues. And, and I think she's actually, I think she's one of the best people, not just in this country, but in the world, who looks at those moral issues. I think a lot of intellectual property scholars sort of, or a lot of patent scholars particularly, put those moral issues off to the side. Um, and don't really discuss them too much, where she is very much interested. That, that's one of, I've talked about her international focus of her scholarship, but she does have this other vein of scholarship that deals with moral issues. And a lot of those, a lot of those issues come up in the life sciences. I'm sorry, I was, yeah, I was gonna call you and, go ahead. Um, so this is an IP specific, but can you talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of relationships that you develop with students or that other professors develop with students in the course of their time? So I think we're, uh, um, one of the nice things about UVA is we're a medium-sized law school so that the, we're large enough to support, uh, a, I think, a, a very large and diverse faculty. Um, but we're also not in the sort of 500 range 
which I've taught at. I've taught at schools that are both smaller and larger than UVA. And I think um, a smaller law school, the, the smaller you get, the more one-on-one -on -one relationships you can have with professors. Um, but, or I should say the more the, prof I should say that, that I'm not sure that's true. I, I think that because the faculty also expands, scales with the students. The, the faculty get to know all of the students in a class more easily in a smaller law school. Um, at a medium-sized law school like this, though, we, the professors get to know the students very well. I'm very interested, I, I, for example, I know I and my colleagues, we work very hard to write recommendations, secure things like clerkships and jobs um, for uh, students. And in fact, actually, um, as, a, as an example, uh, I don't have, if you go to Dotan Oliar's publication page, just last year he published something with a student in a law review, a co-authored piece. Um, and that is more common than you would think um, at other law schools. Um, and and uh, so uh, that's what I would say about that. And we have very good relationships with our students to the point where we'll even develop co-authorship relationships with them, which is you know, more of a peer, usually more of a peer-to-peer -peer relationship. Um, and I think that's usually with the more, you know, the, obviously the, the third year students, the people who've, who've had more experience. Yes? Um, you just mentioned clerkships. I was just wondering um, where, like, recent alums have ended up from the IP program. Like, do they just go and patent prosecution, or is there something kind of more unique? So, most people, I think, do not go to patent prosecution, and that's true of all law, all sort of top 10, top 15, top, really even top 20 law schools, that patent prosecution and the law firms is sort of the, the sort of lower cost business um, that's done more on volume. So people who graduate from, and this is not unique to UVA, people who graduate from here and, and, and other similar law schools tend to go into litigation or, or to uh, firms. Now their immediate job is often a clerkship, which when I went to law school I knew nothing about what a clerkship was. Um, but clerkships are these little jobs that you get after law school that you're sort of the gopher for a judge. And it turns out they're sort of pretty good jobs. as it, They're sort of relatively high, highly sought after. One of my, uh, my research assistant from, who graduated last year, he's clerking for um, a district judge, and then he's going to clerk on what's called the Federal Circuit, which is the sort of chief patent court um, in the United States. It's, it's the court that's right below the Supreme Court. Um, most of, or many of our people clerked on, uh, of our faculty did clerkships. I clerked for a judge in Washington on the D.C. Circuit, and then I clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. Um, and, and we do try to, we have a very extensive clerkship program here, and we get our students' clerkships on, on courts of appeals. We, we actually do quite well at the Supreme Court, too, um, and, and district courts as well. So, for example, the judge who came here, who's, I think, one of the best district judges on, on patent law, although he's, he's not just a patent law lawyer. He's, again, he's very, you know, he has a very broad portfolio of things that he's been involved in. His current clerks are both UVA grads, um, and he, and, and at the talk he gave to now, one of his current, one of our current students who's going to clerk for him showed up, but there are also another two wandering around, the, uh, uh, wandering around the building too. Um, so we do pretty well on on, on clerkships generally, and and in areas where we're interested in 
uh, where students who want to, who are interested in intellectual property, want to go to particular areas, we, we tend to do well there too. This side of the room hasn't asked any questions. Is this the quiet side? Well, actually, I see it's it's four minutes to go. So, well, I'll ask. I'll get one more question, then I have to actually go teach. Which talked about the breadth of interest, and you said a lot of people end up in litigation. So, is there litigation experience among the faculty? Uh, well, I litigated, and actually, I still consult. Um, so, I've uh, argued before the Federal Circuit. I've actually been co-counsel at a, uh, one of my articles that I put up here was on this doctrine um, that if any of you know, sort of called obviousness, which is sort of the key patentability standard. There was a case about eight years ago that Supreme Court changed the standard 20 years worth of precedent. And that was, I was on the winning side of that one and, and in fact had published something in 2003 targeting the lower court case law and saying this is vulnerable. And challenging people in a number of talks I gave to lawyers saying, Bring me this case. We can get the Supreme Court to grant cert, to, to agree to review the case, and, and we can get the doctrine changed. And it was just lucky I was able to deliver on that. And, 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 and it's in print. The, the prediction is in print from two, with the 2003 publication date. So you can compare the publication with the actual outcome and say, you know, he's not just blowing smoke. He actually did something. So that's litigation. And I still consult um, in, in, in cases where allowed, professors are allowed to consult. And, so, and at other law schools, professors do that too. Um, not all, but, but, but some. So I continue to do that. And I litigated in, in Washington after, I cl after my clerkships were done and before I went into academics. I was just a sort of associate. And uh, by the way, one last thing I'll tell you about, about being a lawyer. You hear a lot of bad things about being a lawyer. Being a lawyer is great. I loved it. It was wonderful. I loved it so much that I still do it. And part of it, part of it is, you know, there's a lot of reasons to do it. I think it helps my teaching. When I teach a case that I can say, here's what happened in the case because I was there, students like believe it a little bit more. Um, but I love it because it's fun. It's interesting. There's amazing things you'd never think of that, you know, never come up with the hypothetical crazy things that you wouldn't believe that happen in the real world. Um, and I really enjoy it. So you should be, if you hear any sort of, at other schools, professors saying, well, there's the practice and big firm practice is so tough. It's like, put, take that with a huge grain of salt. I found it extremely enjoyable and really an intellectual feast. Um, it was so interesting. If, if you are engaged in the law, if you are interested in the law, the issues that you will see are interesting. But you've got to bring, you've got to bring the curiosity to find the interesting issues. They are there. Every piece of litigation, I think, ultimately was about some very interesting and fundamental issue in the law. That's what generates litigation, and that's why it's so much fun. <laughs>